Being devoted from 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 11 to 16 and this is part 9 in our series in 1 Timothy. So last Sunday because of the baptism we had a small break in our series and then as we get closer to Christmas we'll have another, another break as well because of the Christmas season and resume in January. In our last message on 1 Timothy, the Apostle gave us some challenges pertaining to the to living a, a disciplined life and the, the similarities, he drew some similarities between what it is to live, a, a, to be physically disciplined and exercise and also what it is to be spiritually trained. But there is a difference between the two. For all of the, the health benefits that constant training and, and physical exercise is, is good for you, you know, all that walking and all that dieting and all that stuff, apparently it's good for you. Uh, it's the, all the benefits are only for this life, but spiritual benefits are good for this life and the next. And through it all, the reason for this is that we are actually being made fit for heaven. Not fat, but fit for heaven. And the whole, and that's, that's actually an important point because we are, what we're doing here is I'm, I'm, I'm spiritually feeding you. And unless you actually put it into exercise, all this stuff that you're learning, you're going to get a fat head with very little exercise, no, no putting stuff into practice. You're just constantly feeding. But the whole idea is that you exercise your faith, you put it into practice as we approach the day either of our impending death or when Jesus returns. And sorry to remind you again that we're all going to die. That's a, that's a reality. And we have to live in the light of that. But we don't want to just, you know, live a, a depressed life because of the fact that we're all going to die. No, we have a, we, we have a, a reason to live. We actually have hope. We, the hope of glory is something that should drive everything we do. Now back to the letter of 1 Timothy. It's also important to highlight the fact that while this is a pastoral letter directed to young Timothy, it was not written exclusively to him. This letter would be read publicly so that the congregation in, in Ephesus, where he was pastoring, would have been deliberately aware of what the Apostle Paul was writing to his young lieutenant in Timothy. All the exhortations and all the encouragements that, that he was receiving, everybody else would have listened in. This is important because when Timothy came to implement these things that the Apostle Paul was writing in the letter, they would know that it wasn't just Timothy's idea when he started to, to push them or implement them, but these were actually things that came from God to Paul, to Timothy, to the church and to us today. These instructions were applicable to the church then 
as they are to the church today and until the day that Jesus returns. So what else? Of all the things that we've already looked at in our series, what else did Paul instruct Timothy in verses 11 to 10 to set an example? Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. It appears from just reading between the lines that Timothy was a bit of a a, a timid fellow. Also, he was younger than a, a lot of the people in the church in Ephesus. And when we say younger, we don't mean someone in their 20s or much less somewhere in their teens, someone in their teens. Timothy was probably in his 30s by this time but he was still considered young in that environment. From just adding all the dates and, and all that, we, it, it's, we can assume that Timothy has already been a Christian for some 15 years. But he lived in a culture that placed a huge value on maturity and life experience. Remember that the church leaders were called elders because it was assumed that an older man carried experience, a greater experience, and and could lead and guide the church. In many countries, maybe not so much in Australia today, but many countries in Asia, in Africa, just the mere fact that you are old, you carry a lot of respect with you, and especially if the, the color of your hair starts to change and goes white. Now, some people in Ephesus, possibly the the false teachers that I referred to in the earlier chapters, might have asserted that Timothy was too young to have any real authority or to to be leading the church as a pastor. Maybe he started to feel a little bit threatened by their words and by, by these elders. So Paul again says to him, command and teach these things. He didn't say, run this idea by them or advise them. He says, command and teach these things. So they they, they couldn't just shrug off Timothy's teaching with the excuse that he was too young and didn't really know what he was talking about. And and the word translated to to look down, to, to look down on means to disdain or to underrate. And when the letter was read before all the believers, it would serve as Paul's encouragement to Timothy, backing him up, and an implicit rebuke to the rest of the church who were thinking this way. It served this double purpose. And the best way to answer your critics is actually just to set an example with your life. And that's a big subject, right? It encompasses so much of life. It is all of life. The word means your your manner of life, the way you live your life, your behaviour. And we all know that it's a lot harder to live it out than it is to stay up, be up the front here and declare it before others. There will always be those around who will point out the inconsistencies 
in your life. But Paul, you said this from the pulpit and, and there you are living this way, you know, you're a bit of a hypocrite. And I said, well, tell me something I don't know. It's really hard to live up to the standards that are set in the Scriptures and by which pastors and leaders and elders are to live by. Because the world will surely point it out to you before you even realise. This is why it's such a challenge to live an exemplary life. And also note that the, these, the, the things that the five areas here that the Apostle Paul is going is to name, five specific areas that go under, this is how you are to be an example, the world interprets these areas differently to the way that the Bible does. So what are the things that Timothy needed to keep an eye on? Well, his speech. He needed to be careful about the things that he said. Learning to control your tongue is a, is a very difficult thing, especially when you're upset in traffic and all that. Specific, especially difficult when you are, you know, when people start pushing you at work. Today, with the, with the advent of uh, social media, it just goes beyond speech. You have to, whatever's happening in your life, please give, give, give thought before you vent on Facebook or Instagram, wherever it is, before the rest of the world or Twitter, whatever it is you're doing. Because the rest of the world will hear it and read it. Most people will ignore it, but you only need a couple to pick up on it and there you go. speech, your conduct. Conduct is a very broad word that means your manner of life again. Today we could say this is your lifestyle. And when it comes to our conduct, we are to be careful rather than being careless. Our behaviour should testify to our primary commitment to Jesus Christ in a not in a natural way but it has to be flow from our life it has to come naturally this is the way we are it's not the way we pretend to be but this is who I am take it or leave it because I follow Christ you know things such as honesty integrity how you spend your time and your money, your priorities, your, your attitude towards your possessions. Big area, that one. Your personal appearance. These all form part of your conduct. Love is another big word in the Scriptures because it is essential to the true Christian. even more so for those who serve within the church. Any, you could have various programs as part of the church ministry and they could appear successful and effective and run efficiently, but without love, it is 
simply something that you do. It's not a ministry at all. As we've mentioned before, biblical love is not primarily a feeling, but rather a self-sacrificing, caring environment, commitment, which shows itself in seeking the highest good for the one that you are loving and, and, and serving. Faith, another big word in the Bible. It's easy to call ourselves believers and yet too often we're not believers in the way that we express it each and every day. What I mean is that we have a natural tendency to live and act as if it's all up to us and not up to God. But in order to carry on any significant service or ministry, we must be men and women of faith. The Bible says the righteous will live by faith. And this word could also be interpreted as faithfulness because we are to be constant, committed, dependable rather than being flighty and irresponsible, especially if we've taken on a ministry. We are to be people that others can depend upon. We say we're going to do something, we're going to do it. No excuses. In a world full of alternative activities, don't be the one who's, who's not going to commit until he sees a, a better offer, a better opportunity, then I'll commit, then I'll say yes. Be the one that says yes and sticks to it. That's what it means to be faithful. And this is type of behaviour is to be displayed in the local church, the way you live your life, at work. Be faithful, dependable. And also in purity. This means moral purity, not just outwardly, but also in your thought life. And this is hard, particularly with so many temptations around everywhere. In all of these things, Timothy was to be exemplary. To be sure, a difficult thing for any individual, but especially when you consider that Timothy was, was still young, a young pastor ministering in the city of Ephesus, one of the most immoral, well, morally decadent places in the ancient world. And it's the same today with the sexual freedom that is out there. The message of purity goes against the current of society. And the Bible calls us to moral purity. Back to basics, verses 13 to 14. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Now, I have heard it a few times and, uh, and from different sources that the way to do church today has to change. If we want to be relevant, we have to change the way we do church. The argument goes that the early church 
did church differently than the way that we do church today. This is part of the argument and in books and conferences and blah, blah, blah. But the historical evidence actually proves otherwise. I mean, Justin Martyr, one of the early post-apostolic church leaders who lived around about 100 AD, 100 years after the birth of Christ, he gave us a description of what the church service was like, what we're doing here now. He said that it was made up of reading the word. There was preaching. It's what we're doing now. There was exhortation upon the audience. There were prayers. There was observance of the Lord's Supper. How about that? And we also know from from reading the epistles that there was plenty of singing. It goes on. So how different was it than what we're doing now? So we can see that the kind of meetings that the early church had were not all that different to our own. So let's hone in on on one of these, which is the public reading of scriptures. Of scripture. It's one in one Thessalonians, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians to the church of Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 5.27, Paul says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter, which is the letter that he was writing that was being read, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. So there was definitely a time in the local church where they gave a special time for the reading of the Word of God. And it was a very important time. And they, at that time, they mostly read from the Old Testament. But as we can see from Paul's instructions, some of the early epistles were also to be read as part of the church service. Now this was a normal practice in the synagogue. Remember when Jesus started his ministry, he went to the synagogue and read from the the reading that was there. So they would read from the the Torah, the the Old Testament. And that carried on to the Christian church. In those days, of course, they didn't have easy access to the Scriptures like we do today. It, It was not easy for a person. You'd have to be very, very rich to have a copy of the scriptures because there were, there were no printers. The printers came in around about the 1500s with Gutenberg. Everything had to be copied by hand. There were scrolls and many scrolls for each book. The cost to buy a scroll would be prohibitive, hard to access. For this reason, the, the, the practice of memorizing scripture was very important. People used to memorize all of the Psalms and all of the Old Testament, many chapters and chapters. And this was reinforced in the early church. For this, for this reason, the public reading of Scripture was important. The other important task that Timothy is charged with is to the preaching and teaching. 
So what is the distinction between teaching and preaching? In the, in the book of Acts, uh, Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Can you see the distinction there between preaching and teaching? Now, even though they are very closely related, between, there's a lot of relationship between the two things, between preaching and teaching. In teaching, we are seeking to explain, to give the, the background, the, the context, the historical background perhaps, and in understanding God's word, God's truth. While in our preaching, we are then making an appeal to people's wills, to their emotions, urging them, persuading them, pleading with them to respond to the word that they have just been, been taught. I've been told a few times that I'm a better teacher than I am a, a preacher. I don't know what that means. Anyway, it is responsible for us to, to, to do the explaining, the, the, the context, because whatever it is you're appealing people to do has to be based on fact, on truth. You can't just tell them, Anything, you know, I'm selling ice cream here. It's sweet, it's nice. This is life and death stuff. Therefore, it's important that it be taught well. So it's irresponsible for us to call upon our listeners to act without having first provided a proper understanding of the basis for the action for which we are calling them. Now, over the years, there, were also, there has also been a lot of debate when it comes to spiritual gifts, especially in the 70s and 80s. I think that was, that was a big thing. A spiritual gift may best be defined as a God-given ability for service. That is a gift, a spiritual gift. It is significant that in, that in each of, the, in each of the, the four New Testament passages that deal with spiritual gifts, it is, it, they tell us that each believer in Christ has at least one gift and some have more than one. And when do you receive that gift? Well, a talent you receive when you are, are born, that's the difference between a talent and, and a gift. What's a talent? Well, for example, some people have a talent for, to sing in tune, others don't. Ted, you're not listening, Okay. And, and that's a talent. Some are able to pick up an instrument and, and by, play by ear and others read to music. And some have amazing memories, photographic memories and, and others. That's, that's a talent. It's, it, it's a God-given talent. They both come from God. But a gift is something that is given to you by the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, when you are born again, when you've given your life to Christ, when you become a believer. And God gave you this gift, not for your own personal advantage, but it is for service in the church. It is a big topic. I'm just going very quickly by it. And uh, this is what it says. I'll give you one passage. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. 
There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. For the common good. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. So what Paul is doing here is that he's reminding Timothy of a special moment in his life. That was the moment of his ordination. The, the laying on of hands was used as a, as a part of a commissioning service, commissioning somebody for service. And, and we find a very similar scene, the laying on of hands and commissioning when Paul and Barnabas were, were sent out the first time in Acts chapter 13. And this is what he says. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, so that after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So by laying their hands on Timothy, they were affirming his gifting. And, and the gifting company, that of leadership and pastoral work within the church. So this is how Timothy became Paul's deputy in the city of Ephesus. Also tells him to be diligent, verse 15. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. In the ESV, it has practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. At our meeting on Thursday, as Paul, as, as, as Ted reminded us, at our meeting on Thursday, we appointed ministry leaders who will serve the church in the coming year. We all need to remember that accepting a ministry is not volunteering for Jesus or doing a job because the pastor or the church has no one else to call upon. They need your help. At its core, when serving in a church ministry, you are dying to self and leaving, and, and you're leaving your desires and you are living for Jesus. God never calls us primarily to fulfill a program or a task. Jesus calls us to himself. Unless you get that right, you will be doing whatever you're doing for the wrong reason. Please understand that. This means that before I can do something for God, I must be something in relationship to God. And once you accept it, you can't then go and do it half-heartedly. Give it your all. Give it your all, despite the fact that no one else might notice. Despite the fact that no one else might not appreciate it. Do it for the audience of one, God. Be fully immersed in it, Paul tells Timothy, right? Give yourself wholly to them. Warren Weasby 
give some insight into this word progress so that, that, that everybody may see your progress. He says, uh, it is the Greek military term which means to pioneer advance. It describes the, the soldiers, the special ops who go ahead of the troops, ahead of the army to clear away obstacles to do not only reconnaissance work but also to engage if it need be and then others will follow. As a godly pastor, Timothy was to grow spiritually so that the whole of the church could see his spiritual progress and then imitate him. Of course, at the end of the day, no pastor can lead his people where he hasn't been there himself. You lead and hopefully the people will follow. And Paul says not only should you be making progress in your Christian life, but you should be making visible progress, the type of progress that is actually evident to all. It's not a secret thing. In other words, you shouldn't really be repeating the old mantra that irks me. What is the old mantra? I don't care what people think. Because when it comes down to it, you actually should. Paul, that's just wrong. No, no, you shouldn't care what people think. No, hear me out. How else would you interpret Jesus' words, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven? No, we don't do it for the people, but they should be able to see our progress. They should be able to see our light shining. So therefore, we, we, we don't live our lives isolated from everybody else. Everybody's looking in. Everybody pays attention the way that you carry on your work at work. In your neighbourhood. In your ministry, in your church. You have to care. And lastly, persevere. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do you will save both yourself and your hearers. As we already studied in the earlier verses, the Christian life takes a lot of effort and discipline. The prosperity preachers might tell you that, you know, it's, unless you, are, you have material blessings, um, you're not really being faithful to God. You're, there has to be a, a, a visible display. It has to be coming the car, the type of car you drive, the type of family you have. It has to be. Everybody has to see how materially blessed you are. Otherwise, people might think that God hasn't blessed you. But the Bible I read, I don't know where they get that from, but the, because the Bible I read has talks about blood, sweat, and tears until we reach heaven. There's no shortcuts, there's no easy, easy peasy, take it easy type of thing. 
It's not a short sprint, but more like a, this long distance marathon. You keep going. Now God already told us about this. He warned us about this. That it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. This is why the Bible continually has to remind us and exhort us not to give up, to persevere, to keep going because the rewards will be worth it. And a crucial task in the ministry of exhortation is to keep watch over your doctrine, our doctrine closely to make sure that our beliefs, what we believe, lines up with God's word. And I just gave you one example there regarding prosperity. And directly following on from that, watch your life closely to make sure that your life is consistent with your beliefs. Your belief matches your doctrine, your doctrine matches the Word of God. This is difficult if you don't know your Bible. And it's even more difficult when your edification comes from different ministries or different preachers online, you know, you listen to this guy, you watch that guy and and you're not really part of a fellowship but you go here or there and everywhere. How on earth do you know the person you're watching and you're getting spiritually fed, how do you know what their life is like in the context of their normal life? You're only watching a 45 minute, half an hour presentation of whatever it is How do you know how they live their life the rest of the time? But in a church, you you get to see it. Well, you know, how do you live? Well, come and see. You know, I've got nothing to hide. It, It has a context. Your life is lived out in a context. There has to be consistency between what we profess and how we live it out. Especially today when so many are are softening up on their doctrine, on their doctrinal stance. And even those things that they once held as they grow up, as they grow older, I've seen so many even of my own colleagues who have softened up their stance. I said, wow, you've changed. Man. Not always for the better. Regarding doctrine, the the late uh, CMA pastor, Church Missionary Alliance pastor, A.W. Tozer, about, I don't know, 50 or 60 years ago, this is what, this is quite prophetic. Not only what he was observing then, but even more so today. And this is what he said. He said, and I quote, "We We have gotten accustomed to the blurred puffs of grey fog that pass for doctrine in churches and expect nothing better. From some previously unimpeachable sources are now coming vague statements consisting of a milky admixture of scripture, science and human sentiment that is true to none of the ingredients because each one works to cancel the others out. Little by little, Christians these days are being brainwashed. One evidence is that increasing numbers of them are becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. 
They say they believe, but their beliefs have been so diluted as to be impossible of clear definition. Moral power has always accompanied definite beliefs. Great saints have always been dogmatic. We need a return to a gentle dogmatism that smiles while it stands stubborn and firm on the word of God that lives and abides forever. I can't put any better than that. Finally, after all of Paul's teaching on grace, it's not as if he's now, on these final last words, he's going to change his tune and, 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 and start saying that, you know, we're going to be saved by works. No. When Paul tells Timothy to save himself and his hearers, he's not contradicting his own doctrinal stance. For example, in, uh, that we are saved by faith apart from works, which is what he tells us in Ephesians, right? He's pointing out to the to the present and the future aspect of salvation. The, the, the benefit of persevering or sticking, of, of sticking it out, your life lived not just for a sprint but as a marathon, is that others will see it. And as they see your life, their lives will be impacted. And your impact can go on even after you, you are gone, even after you have died. How does this work? Like, for example, my, you know, I, I buried my mum and, and dad last year. But the impact on my life over the years, you know, every now and then I stop and I say, yeah, that's what mum would have said. Or that's what dad would have done. It continues. <coughs> so their witness continues to speak even long after they are gone. And I know that many of you can say the same. Isn't that something that we would wish for our own lives and for our own children and grandchildren if God should bless us that way? Stop thinking of yourself and think of the impact that you can have in the life of others. Not only our own salvation but we wanting others to join us in eternity. And being devoted means those who are saved will persevere and they will encourage others to persevere and to continue until the day that God calls us home. Amen.